Modern Murders covers topics that may not be suitable for young children. Listener discretion is advised. Sources for our episodes can be found in the show notes. Photos relating to the episode can be found on our Twitter at Modern Murders. Join our Facebook discussion group and tell us what you think of the case. I do want to give a disclaimer about this episode. There is going to be some talk about child murder. The youngest is going to be less than five, so that could be a trigger for some people, and if child murder is not your thing, you may want to skip this episode. I don't go into too much detail about it, but it is mentioned, so I do want to give that disclaimer. Welcome to Modern Murders. I'm your host, Ariel. And tonight, Nate won't be joining us. He just welcomed a new baby into his family, and so he is tuckered out from being a father of two, and he will join us soon. All right, let's get into the episode. Nehemiah Griego was born in 1997 to Greg and Sarah Griego. The family lived in Bernalillo County, located in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Nehemiah was one of 10 children, and he was the oldest boy. He grew up as a talented kid with a passion for music, wrestling, and the U.S. military. He wanted to eventually follow in his father's footsteps by joining the military after high school. Family and friends described him as an outgoing kid with a lot of friends, so he was definitely not a loner by any standards. When I was looking at the house on Google Satellite Imagery, I noticed that the house was surrounded by a lot of farmland, so I think this was more of a rural-type community, and the house itself was on a big plot of land, so the house was very large to fit such a large family, and it seemed like their neighbors were a little bit farther down the street than your normal suburb. All the kids were homeschooled, and they were all taught by their mom, Sarah, who was a stay-at-home mom while also putting in volunteer hours at their family church. Greg was a former pastor to a church, but still continued to work as a chaplain and volunteered at the homeless shelter. Their family's church was led by another pastor, and the family was very active in their community and their church. Greg had a very unusual history for a pastor. While serving in the U.S. Army and New Mexico National Guard, he married his first wife. Greg fell on hard times and started abusing drugs. This ultimately led him into a gang lifestyle, which cost him his marriage and freedom, with Greg spending time in prison. While in prison, Greg imagined a better life for himself and turned to religion as a means to lift himself up. Greg and Sarah were married in 1994. He became a pastor after getting out of prison and focusing his life on helping others and raising his kids. Nehemiah accompanied his father on rescue missions in Mexico through the church, and I'm not sure what is meant by a rescue mission, but it does have to do with the church, so I'm not sure if this was one of those build a school, or it could even be a situation where they they were helping somebody get over the border. Nehemiah's uncle and Greg's brother named Eric was New Mexico's Democratic Senator from 2009 to 2013. Prior to this, he served as city councilman from 2001 to 2005. Fast forward to 2013, and the three oldest sisters had moved out of the house. The remaining kids in the house were Nehemiah, 15, Zephaniah, 9, Yale, 5, and Angelina, 2. On January 18, 2013, Greg left to volunteer at a nearby homeless shelter, which was more of a graveyard shift for him, so he was away overnight. 
he would eventually be off work at around 5 a.m. the next morning. Sarah and Nehemiah had gotten into an argument, and it resulted in him going to bed early. Nine-year-old Zephaniah slept in his mom's bed that night, with the two younger sisters in their own room. For unknown reasons, Nehemiah was so angered that night that he then planned something unforgivable. He went into his mother's room, where she and his brother slept. He retrieved a 22 caliber rifle, loaded the gun, and shot his mother in the face. His brother woke up from the gunshot and asked what was going on. Nehemiah told Sephaniah that mom was dead, and when he didn't believe what he was hearing, Nehemiah lifted Sarah's head by her hair to show him. Panic led to screams, and Nehemiah chose to point the gun at his younger brother's face and pulled the trigger. It is at this point that Nehemiah describes his conscience leaving him and letting the beast out. By this point, the two younger sisters were crying from the loud noise, and Nehemiah went into their room, and they too were both shot. I'm not sure how much time went by, but Nehemiah went back into his mom's room to take a picture of her and then retrieved an AR-15 and loaded the gun. He then went downstairs to a small bathroom across from the front door and waited for his father Greg to come home. It was around 5 a.m. that Greg finished his shift at the homeless shelter and came home. After unlocking the door and entering the house, he passed by the bathroom and Nehemiah came out of the bathroom to shoot his dad several times. He shot him again in the head while he laid on the floor, and after murdering his entire family, Nehemiah loaded all of the weapons in the house, which included a rifle, AR-15, and two shotguns. He put these weapons in the family's van with a plan to drive to the nearest Walmart and start shooting people at random. For some reason, he had a change in plans, and he decided to go to his family's church instead to talk to somebody. This morning was on a Sunday, so the church would be holding service. He met his then 12-year-old girlfriend at church and told her that his family was killed in a car accident. Earlier that morning, after killing his mother, he sent that photo to his girlfriend. I would imagine that she was distressed by the photo and told a family member, which is when her grandmother came up to them both and asked Nehemiah if he was okay, and she also asked what happened to his family. She directed him to the pastor's office to talk and told Nehemiah that he needed to speak with the pastor. While walking to the pastor's office, the security guard working for the church named Vince Harrison talked to Nehemiah about what was bothering him because he could tell that something was wrong with the young boy. When he learned of the family's death, Vince called police to come to the church. Police were able to get the house key from Nehemiah to enter the house. Police took him to the station where he was read his Miranda warning, which he waived and said he didn't need an adult or a lawyer present. Simultaneously, while Nehemiah was telling detectives a story, police entered the home and found the massacre at 8.30 a.m. on January 19, 2013. Nehemiah's story went like this. A stranger had entered the home and killed his entire family while he was at a friend's house. He came home shortly after 5 a.m. to find the front door locked, so he opened it with his key. When he went inside, he found his entire family murdered upon first seeing his dad lying near the base of the stairs and the rest of the family dead upstairs. In his panic state, he picked up the AR-15 and the 22 caliber rifle and shot a few rounds into the backyard out of anger. He also picked up the spent shell casings. Originally, his story was that his dad put the weapons in the van, but then realized his fingerprints would be on the gun. He then changed his story to him loading the family's van with the weapons to protect himself from whoever murdered his family, and then drove to the church to tell someone what had happened. What do you think detectives thought of this story? 
he was only 15 years old. Detectives confronted Nehemiah that his story was not holding up to the way he thought it sounded, and they called bullshit on his story. After a little more pushing, Nehemiah said that he had anger issues and was frequently annoyed with his family. He then told detectives the real story, which was more believable to them. He also told police that his original plan was to do the shooting spree at the Walmart and die from suicide by cop. He had also thought about killing his girlfriend's family as well after killing his own. Police later noted that Nehemiah's retelling of the murders was very cold and matter-of-fact. The same impression was made on the security officer Vince Harrison when he talked to him. The only time that detectives saw any emotion from Nehemiah is when they asked him about what he liked to do in his spare time. He told them he liked to play video games. Nehemiah's uncle Eric stepped up to be his new guardian and made this statement after the arrest. Quote, We are deeply concerned about the portrayal in some media of Nehemiah as some kind of a monster. It is clear to those of us who know and love him that something went terribly wrong. Whether it was a mental breakdown or some deeper undiagnosed psychological issue, we can't be sure yet. What we do know is that one of us, even in our wildest nightmare, could have imagined that he could do something like this, end quote. Nehemiah was obviously arrested, but because he was 15 years old, he was charged as a juvenile with the death of his family. This is sort of an area that I'm not too familiar with because I think it varies from state to state. The only thing that I do know in this case is that he could not face the death penalty because of his age. He was immediately sentenced to a juvenile detention center where he would undergo rehabilitation therapy until he was 21. His charges were five counts of first-degree murder, three counts of child abuse, three counts of death to a child under 12 years old. I have to say that his defense lawyer did a very good job because Nehemiah was almost free just two weeks shy of his 21st birthday in 2009. Prosecutors were able to hold his release, and a hearing was set for October 15th to see if Nehemiah could be tried for his crimes as an adult. The legal battle was a little lengthy on this one and hard to follow for me. Nehemiah's defense was saying that he should be let out at 21 on parole and continue rehab therapy to ease him back into society. Since there is no actual program that does this, the defense asked the judge to consider this new approach. A few judges were involved in this case from time to time. The defense called a neuroradiologist named Dr. Orison to look at Nehemiah's MRI scans, and he noted that there were signs of trauma to the brain. This defense wasn't strong enough because on the cross-examination, the neuroradiologist also noted that this trauma was normal in MRIs. The prosecution called a psychologist, Dr. Mohandi, to say that Nehemiah had no signs or no history of mental health problems. During the trial, a few interesting things came up. For starters, there were accusations that both parents were physically and mentally abusive to kids. There was no actual evidence of this, and Nehemiah never gave this as a reason for killing his family when he talked to detectives. While Nehemiah was in the juvenile detention center, a mental health care worker started a non-sexual relationship with him and said that she fell in love with Nehemiah. She was 35 at the time and faced state charges against her for the misconduct. Nehemiah's defense claims that he was a great model 
of someone who can be successfully rehabilitated, but the prosecution brought up that Nehemiah had made death threats, showed aggressive behavior, and even assaulted a worker while in the detention center as a juvenile. The defense brought up that the main fact that charging Nehemiah at 21 would be a double jeopardy for the six and a half years that he's already spent in a detention center and that he should not be charged for the same crimes twice. After the defense and prosecution rested, the judge found that Nehemiah can and will face charges for his crimes. Before sentencing, Nehemiah's two older sisters spoke out to tell the judge this. I personally would like him to stay behind bars. I think he is a danger to society and I think he's a danger to our family. His sentence is about to be up and he might be released. In new court documents obtained by Target 7, Griego's sister tells investigators he told her he would kill a bunch of people and made a comment in the past about going to Walmart and killing people. His other sister says she stopped talking to him in 2013 because it was too weird. She said he wanted her to visit him, but only if she was pregnant. She told investigators she was worried about her safety when her brother was released. Nehemiah had a chance to address the judge, his uncle, and to his sister saying this. I am sorry for taking our parents and our sins. You know, I wish I could take it back, but reality is that we can't. He told them he is healed and is ready to move on and into the world. I want no retaliation. I love you guys, and I want to see the best for y'all. And whatever you may do, and I do pray for you guys to have healing the way I'm out of healing. Aunts and uncles were also in the courtroom, some of the few people who supported Griego's release from jail. Nobody's ever shown me that kind of mercy and that kind of compassion the way you guys have. And I'm so damn grateful for you guys. He said something to his uncle that really angered his sister. You've basically been a second father to me. You're the father I wish I had. You can hear his sister start crying in the courtroom. You can hear her storm out of the courtroom in tears. Griego glanced at her but carried on. He then spoke to the judge after addressing his family. Even the worst of us can make progress. Even the ones who've been through hell and back can still make it. Telling the judge he's ready to go out into the world and make a better life for himself. The judge sentenced Nehemiah to three concurrent life sentences. These life sentences are for his three younger siblings. The judge also sentenced Nehemiah to concurrent seven years for each parent. The judge did show leniency here when sentencing because she could have made all of the sentences consecutive, meaning that he would have to serve all of the life sentences one after the other, but instead he'll be serving them at the same time. The state prosecutor was asking for the sentence to be 120 years. She also considered the time Nehemiah had already spent as a juvenile and applied those seven years to his total of 37. The judge felt that Nehemiah could be rehabilitated one day, but that time would not be soon. He is eligible for parole after his 30-year life sentence. He will be 52 at the time that he is eligible. As you can imagine, Nehemiah and his defense attorney are actively trying to appeal his case. I wanted to end this with going over who the victims were, and I got this information from their obituaries. This one is about Greg. He was born on December 8, 1961. His obituary says that he was a loving father, husband, brother, uncle, and grandfather who was a selfless servant of God who touched many lives. He overcame difficult obstacles in his own life and became a symbol of redemption and compassion 
for those who struggled with addiction and incarceration. He was an Army veteran who served on a peacekeeping force in the Sinai Peninsula and served in the New Mexico National Guard. He was a pastor at the Calvary Chapel for five years, a chaplain for the Albuquerque Fire Department and Metropolitan Detention Center, and a veterans advocate. Sarah was born on January 25, 1972. A loving mother, wife, sister, daughter, grandmother, and aunt, she was devoted to the Lord and her family. She was a homeschool teacher, ministered to women in jail, and was active in Calvary Chapel's Spanish and Jail Ministry. She loved animals and had dogs, chickens, horses, and rabbits. Zephaniah was born on August 25, 2003. A faithful son and brother, he loved to play the djembe drum and wanted to someday be a lawyer. He was a spirited conversationalist with a contagious smile and boundless energy. Gail was born on April 22, 2007. She was daddy's little princess, but could hold her own with her two older brothers. She loved to dance and cuddle and wear glittery dresses. She loved to be photographed and always struck a pose. Angelina was born on October 31, 2010, a beautiful brown-eyed baby girl with a strong will and shy smile. She loved to dance to hip-hop and cried when she got clothes for Christmas. She was cautious with new people, but very attached to her mommy and daddy. So I just want to talk a little bit about this case and some opinions that I had on it. Number one, I'm not quite sure what causes young juveniles to do something so heinous and sudden like this. I sometimes think that it might be rooted in some sort of anger issues with the child that may have been undiagnosed or may could help from therapy, but sometimes people just do terrible things. Sometimes it can't be really explained. And in Nehemiah's case, there was really no psychological or neurological sort of explanation for it from any professionals. So it does seem like it was very random that maybe he had had thoughts in the past and that he just came to a point where he just snapped. I know we see this a lot in modern times of young juveniles taking up really, really heavy armory and going out and just shooting randomly. And I I don't know if that's from video games. I don't think it is, but I do think that there tends to be this glorification sometimes in pop culture with people that commit heinous crimes like these and sort of get some infamy from it. It seems like Nehemiah was not really teased as a kid. There was no evidence of abuse from his parents or his family, so I'm not quite sure if that could be a contributor as well. I do want to say that when you look at the picture of Nehemiah when he was arrested, he does look like a kid. He's very kind of dark looking in a way where his eyes are not quite right. He looks like he's harboring some sort of malintent with him. And even in his later years, you look at pictures of him and he just does not look like he's quite ready to be released into society again. There were instances where he did make threats to his other family members while he was in the juvenile detention center. So I do think that the judge was correct in saying that he does need more time to be rehabilitated and that a parole at 21 would be too risky for the public. He's got very dark, sunken eyes. He just does not look like a happy person. And I can imagine that being in a detention center can do that to you. But at the same time, it's not a risk that Albuquerque is willing to take at this time. 
So maybe when he's 50 years old and a lot of time has passed, he can find a way to get back into society at some point and live out the remainder of his life. But I just think that that would be justice served because his family didn't get to live out their life either. His youngest sibling was only two years old when he shot her, and I can't imagine the pain that the rest of his siblings went through having to bury most of their entire family, not only their parents, but their younger brother and their younger sisters. So that's the case of Nehemiah Griego and his heinous crime of killing his entire family. The resources for this episode are going to be moved to a different platform. I found it a little bit difficult to put them in the show notes, so I am going to link to my website, and you can find them on my website. I also have a Patreon now, and it's Modern Murders on Patreon. Tier starts at $1 a month, $2 a month, and $3 a month. So $1 a month, you can get early access to shows. So you get them on Wednesday instead of on Friday, which is pretty cool. The $2 a month, you get um, bonus episodes that we put out. The $3 a month, we are going to do sort of like an AMA once a month. And yeah, so we're really excited to have the Patreon up now. Um, Everything so far has been out of pocket for me. So if you'd like to support the show and also to keep this show ad-free as of right now, um, you can go to our Patreon and support us. So I want to give a few recommendations of some podcasts that I've been listening to myself. I wouldn't give these recommendations unless I actively listen to them on my own time. And I spend a lot of time recording my episodes, but I also spend a lot of time listening to other people's podcasts. So I just want to give a shout out to Reverie True Crime and the hostess Paige. She has a beautiful Southern accent, and I just love the way that she tells the stories and the way that she narrates you through the stories as well. She also has some interviews with some very interesting people that I have loved to hear from. She talked recently with someone who was a part of the Waco siege, so you can go and check out Reverie True Crime to see that. The last podcast for today's episode that I want to recommend is Dark Rum Podcast, and they talk about some paranormal stuff, they talk about true crime, They talk about anything kind of morbid, and they have their own sense of humor that they add to it, which can sometimes be a little harsh, but if you're into that, you would really like it. I don't find it too harsh for my taste. I think it's very funny, and I have already binged all of their episodes, so you can go and check them out. They are the Dark Rum Podcast. So that's it for right now, and I do want to thank you for joining again for another episode. You can suggest a case episode on Patreon, you can suggest it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you can email me at modernmurders at yahoo.com. So yeah, that's it. That's everything, and I hope everyone is staying safe. I know that uh, as this recording is going on, there are fires local to me in Northern California, Uh, There's also Hurricane Laura that just touched down not too long ago, so I hope everyone is safe in the South, in the Louisiana region, the Texas region, Arkansas, you name it. So until next time, this is Modern Murders. (laughs) 